can come from anywhere and anyone can like it, so let's be more inclusive. Brilliant Inclusion is me, Simon J. Green, a storyteller with cystic fibrosis. And me, Lisa Green, Head of Communications at Arts Access Victoria, talking with artists, audiences, activists and critics about the challenges and joys of art and disability. Joining us today on Brilliant Inclusion is Richard Watts. Melbournians will know Richard from his long-standing and legendary show Smart Arts on Triple R. He is the deputy editor and performing arts editor over at Arts Hub. And among his many other achievements and undertakings, Richard was the founder of the Emerging Writers Festival and sits on the board at La Mama Theatre and is also on the board of Going Down Swinging, a literary journal. Thank you for joining us today, Richard. My absolute pleasure. So I guess for those who don't know you, I don't know who those people are, but uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you started in your career, how you got to where you are now. Entirely accidentally is the the short answer, Um, but the long version, uh, born on Jajarung country in Bendigo, grew up down in the Latrobe Valley, uh, and at 18 or so moved to Melbourne, I was in the public service, uh, and uh, was just decided I could not safely survive in uh, the Latrobe Valley anymore. I lived in Maui uh, and decided that I needed to get out of there fairly quickly. Didn't, um, didn't fit into the moccasins down there? Put it this way, um, th- I had a home invasion inc- uh, uh, incident when a local gang forced their way into my shared house yeah. uh, because uh, I was a poofter and they were going to kill me. Uh, luckily, my female flat uh, said, no, no, he's my boyfriend, he's my boyfriend. Uh, and if she hadn't, yeah, it could have been quite ugly. But consequently, I went, bugger this, I'm out. Time to go. And moved to Melbourne and uh, discovered punk rock and spoken word and um, performing arts and all those other things that have, have kept me alive and happy. Um, and working in the arts was kind of accidental as well. I was doing um, a lot of spoken word and poetry, kind of angry, ranty poems uh, in pubs. <laughs> uh, and uh, a job came up at Next Wave Festival uh, and I was asked to, uh, the I, the festival got in touch with me and asked me to apply for the role of text coordinator uh, for the 2000 Next Wave Festival. So that was my first formal arts gig. I got that thanks to Campion Descent, who was the artistic director at the time, and kind of stayed involved with the arts ever since formally. Um, pri- prior to that, I was on the fringes of things. But it was certainly that gig um, from Next Wave Festival and around the same time uh, volunteering for the Emerging Writers Festival in Newcastle in 99, 2000. Uh, and then uh, working at Express Media for five years as uh, the artistic director. That's a, a youth arts organisation, published VoiceWorks magazine for people who don't know it. And from there kind of stepped sideways into journalism for a while, editing a gay and lesbian newspaper and then... Uh, was reviewing for Beat magazine and started reviewing again for the queer press and for The Age um, and uh, then was asked to apply for the job at Arts Hub, which I did because they said, the CEO at the time said, we need, quote, a real journalist, unquote, (laughs) which I was amused by because I would never have considered myself a real journalist. Uh, And so, yes, I started there uh, in 2009, part-time, uh, and what, seven years, eight years later, here I am working four days a week, uh, plus doing the radio show on Thursdays. Yeah, right. May I ask, Richard, um, you've been a creator yourself, but you've gone into more the side that uh, I think is crucial and a lot of art needs, the people who are organising and arranging and also critiquing. What drew you to that side of the work? the other side of the curtain, if you will. My first reviewing opportunity was because I was DJing in a goth industrial club at the time and an editor needed somebody with specialist knowledge of uh, goth and industrial music to review a new Australian compilation album and said, would I please review this? So I did. Uh, And that led to a few other reviews. And this is for Beat magazine. And then that in turn led to a weekly music review column in the gay press. Uh, I was at the time, I was a a DJ uh, on the fringes of uh, various clubs and was running a a weekly night called Q&A, Queer and Alternative. Uh, And the, at that stage, the gay press were very, it was 
Kylie Minogue and Madonna and <laughs> uh, and so there was a clear because our club was successful the editor at the time said well obviously people like this kind of alternative stuff we better get you to cover it um, so I wrote a, started writing a weekly column so the critical writing really stemmed from there it began as as uh, music criticism and slowly as my editor went oh he can write more than just about music I started writing the odd theatre review I uh, started writing the odd interview um, and before I knew it I was first the assistant editor and then the editor of the paper. Is that what it is then? Lisa was looking at some of the work that you've reviewed and done and you were talking about, you kind of noticed, Richard, you're a little bit, you like to cover the work of the underdog and the way you just described what got you into it was you were covering work that other people weren't covering within a subset of a culture. What were you thinking? Well, it was more just I was reflecting on what I knew about you and your career and, you know, founding the uh, Emerging Writers Festival and I had read that you had worked on a literary journal, I didn't know it was going down swinging, um, and just kind of some of the topics that you cover on Arts Hub that I don't see written about often and, you know, you have a show on Triple R, which is a show that loves community and, and kind of uh, not subversive but offbeat topics and people and I just thought, I don't know, there's something really lovely about that thread in your career which is doing things that are slightly off the beaten track and bringing up artists and ideas that are outside of the the mainstream i think it's possibly because my arts career and my earlier career in like and my involvement with the melbourne punk scene and so on were, were intertwined so i was involved in subcultures to begin with and i also used to um i was an avid uh player and organizer of uh, role-playing games, Dungeons and Dragons, Call of Cthulhu, uh, stuff like that. And in fact, my first professional publishing break was writing uh, for an American role-playing game company. So I've always lo- been interested and drawn to subcultures. Mm. Uh, and that's uh, uh, both a personal trait from being a, uh, a fantasy and science fiction loving geek in a, in a country high school that loved football. Um, but then also later in life, yeah, being drawn to independent music, uh, the 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 uh, the punk scene and stuff like that so i guess as my arts career um and my criticism became established they then certainly my awareness and involvement in subcultures initially very much influenced what i was writing about because i was being exposed to to bands and to artists who perhaps was very much operating independently and on the fringes um uh, and that's certainly then something that's also stayed with me and it's also part of i guess my awareness of and um i don't want to call it a commitment to social justice but that's certainly something that again has informed my personal politics and my personal life that uh, there are organizations and individuals and art forms that exist on the margins and are creating art that is just as valid and just as exciting if not more exciting than the work that's being created on on the main stages around the company Uh, sorry around the uh, uh, created on the main stages around the country would you say that's what drives you to some degree to get that work out for more people to hear about it, understand it, learn, go and see it or hear it? I'm not sure if it's, a, if it's ever really necessarily been a conscious decision. Um, it's something that somebody commented on uh, recently about my Arts Hub work. They said, look, you write a lot about uh, regional companies and small to medium companies and independent artists. Um, and thank God you do, because if you weren't, those conversations wouldn't necessarily be happening yeah. in the mainstream. And it's incredibly important, particularly in the last two years, um, when those voices have become incredibly important to hear with all the shifts in funding and shifts. I say that in quotation marks. Um, uh, Yeah, so I think as uh, someone who works in small, medium arts organisation, I've certainly appreciated that, hearing those voices being brought forward. Yeah, and it's... I I don't know whether it's... um I'm assuming it, it is something that I do deliberately. I don't do it consciously, I think, is the is the key difference. I don't consciously sit down at the start of a, a week or, or, a, or a year or a month and go, right, which overlooked art forms and artists and organisations <laughs> will I talk about today? But they're the ones I'm naturally drawn to, partially because uh, the work that is being done by the larger organisations, say, in, in the theatre sector, for example, STC, MTC, Belvoir, Queensland Theatre, etc., they already get a lot of mainstream media attention. They don't need me to write about them uh, in the same way that 
uh, a small independent show who are doing something on the smell of an oily rag at Fringe here in Melbourne or at Fringe World in Perth, whatever, they need me to write about them because otherwise they're not going to get um, attention, coverage and analysis. And I think it's the analysis part of my job that is one of the, the really important things about arts writing, be it critical arts writing or more discursive work, is that you by analysing companies' work and looking at where they fit in the arts landscape, you provide them with legacy, with documentation and those kind of things that artists need, for example, whether it's applying for a grant application or whether it's just having their body of work documented and explored. Uh, that's one of the reasons I think criticism is incredibly important um, uh, and why... Yeah, I, I think it's. I would like to see criticism recognised as an art. Uh, I almost tweeted the Australia Council yesterday uh, because they announced that uh, um, uh, an international uh, grants program or something for artist development, and I almost tweeted them saying, "I bet there's not a category for critical arts writing, is there?" And I thought better of it. <laughs> Uh, it's interesting you say you don't like deliberately go about it, but as an editor now, you're assigning, I'm assuming you're assigning a lot of um, productions and pieces to writers. And that would be a bit more of a conscious choice too, that you're making, like you have to choose, I want to make sure this is covered. Yes and no. Um, my role as deputy editor at Arts Hub is, a lot of that is about providing support for the editor, Deborah Stone. Um, we have a very, very small team and a, and a very, very uh, limited set of resources. So I am certainly pitching story ideas constantly, um, certainly my stories regularly, but then also uh, I'm suggesting that we contact person X or person Y to say, right, let's get them writing an opinion piece about an issue. Um, uh, now, unfortunately, we don't pay for opinion pieces. And I want to kind of uh, put my hand up and say, I wish we had a contributor's budget for stuff like that, uh, but we don't. And similarly, our reviewers are volunteers, and that is a sore point with uh, at least one colleague of mine. Um, but unfortunately, we don't. I don't. I don't even have a travel budget. So um, as much as I would like to, and if we could, uh, if we got the budget, it, I would immediately say, right, it's more important that we pay freelancers. Um, so opinion pieces uh, we source. Uh, and I source from around because I'm out and meeting people and regularly having these conversations with whereas my editor definitely comes from much more of a journalistic background, whereas I come from more of an arts background. Um, so between the two of us, we then I think we have a, we find a, a good balance. But yeah, so I'm regularly going out and saying, so I, I just got back from Adelaide Festival, for example, about a week ago. And while I was there, I met up with a bunch of people and I've come back with ideas saying, OK, we should talk to this artistic director of a company about uh, an opinion piece on this subject. And maybe I'll do a follow up article talking about this venue crisis or whatever. Um, so, yeah, as as deputy editor, I don't it sometimes in some ways I think it's uh, it, it sounds more of an important title than it is. But. It still sounds like you're still uh, you still are sourcing stories and making choices about what stories might get. Even like you, you sort of it's volunteer work, but that volunteer work you're still choosing who may give an opinion. I think it's it sounds like you sound like you're downplaying it. Classic Australian, it is still sound like influencing what is being discussed, even just in an opinion piece. Even who who you choose should volunteer to do an opinion piece. It's still discussing topics, which I'm very thankful for for that same reason you described, being an emerging artist or talking about emerging topics like inclusive arts. Mm. We need people who... To curate those yeah. conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, they need to be curated and, and to be um, given equal weight to any other issue that's going on in the sector. And obviously funding is something that we will keep coming back to again and again in the sector because it's a small sector. <laughs> um, but there are lots of other equally valid and important conversations. And yeah, so certainly uh, as uh, an arts writer, one of my roles is to make sure that some of those topics are, are getting attention, um, whether that be um, art by young people made for... Uh, whether made for other young people or for adult audiences or art by people with disability or art by people from a, uh, a minority background. Um, there's a, a whole range of, of voices that we do not hear enough of. Um, and I have to keep my, re reminding myself as well. It's that, that constant thing of nothing about us without us. Mm, I've been yeah. guilty of that in the past and I have to constantly remind myself that if I am writing anything that's referencing um, Indigenous issues, I damn well better uh, be sourced uh, an Indigenous representative to, to to speak about that issue. So yeah, it's it's an ongoing it's an ongoing struggle for 
any journalist, I think we tend to fall back on the people we know, the organisations we know. Um, it's why Arts Hub is based in Melbourne and I have to constantly uh, remind myself to say, don't just call the 15 or so theatre makers you're close friends with who you see in foyers every week, call theatre makers or artists from Lismore, from Brisbane, from Perth, from Adelaide, from Darwin, etc. I already noticed when you were giving examples of uh, fringe festivals, you made sure to mention both coasts. Even in your examples, <laughs> you're doing a good job of that. <laughs> it's become ingrained. <laughs> I mean, I, what you just said about you have to remind yourself is particularly resonant with me. My whole shtick is that inclusion is a practice. And I mean, an active practice is something that we have to remind ourselves of every day. Um, and on the last episode of this podcast, I made a bet with our guest, Bridget, that I would create a flyer or a poster for an event that Arts Access was running and that I would forget to put access icons on it. And I did. And that's literally my job. <laughs> so I definitely um, can relate to that idea of stepping back and saying, well, hang on, nothing about us without us. Inclusion is a practice. Yeah, and that Do it you, every day. And that, that a lot of what you're discussing came up with, with Bridget and I think will be a an ongoing theme is empathy. It's that empathy aspect mm. again where, Richard, you're thinking about not just inclusive arts because I think it can't help but come up. You're thinking not just about inclusive arts but young people and people of Indigenous background. All these different aspects is really just your mindset seems to be and it was the same with Bridget. Well, I'm thinking about one subject and group so I can't help but think of another subject and group. You seem to... Those, those who think about it think about it very broadly which must be quite emotionally taxing. I imagine it is. It's, um, but it's also something that I don't necessarily analyse that that much as well, because again, it's uh, it stems from who I am and what I do. It, it's become very much a part of of my practice, um, and it's just the way I think and respond. So, um, with Triple R, for example, uh, the fact that I have the freedom one minute to talk about, uh, say, a work by Victorian opera. Uh, and the next minute I'll be interviewing a young theatre maker who is directing their first show for their for their new independent theatre collective or something like that. Uh, that kind of idea of scale and participation has become, to a degree, auto, semi, semi-automatic for me, I guess. Um, I, I just think in certain ways that, that said, I also constantly need to prod myself to make sure that I don't um, uh, become complacent and forget to include people. Uh, and yeah, I make mistakes and I will keep uh, making them, I'm sure, but hopefully I will also keep learning from them. So I guess let's jump into a bit of conversation about the reason we're all here, inclusive arts and disability arts and discussion about that. Um, Richard, you are a writer and reviewer. How do you review disability arts? Is it different to the way you would review art by people without disability how do you approach it it i think it, it's a, on a case-by-case basis uh i just recently over in adelaide for example i saw a new work by restless dance theater uh, a company um who work with artists both with and without disability uh and they created a, a fantastic new work intimate space uh in the environs of the hilton hotel um, and so some elements of it were performed in public spaces and some in private spaces. And one of the things that I took from it certainly was that it was asking us to, to make a link between the way we look at hotel workers. Uh, so when you look at a ho- hotel, workers are trained to be invisible. Uh, and uh, if you're staying in a hotel, you tend not to notice them or not to think about them. They're just there. They come and clean your room while you're out. Uh, if they bump into you in a hallway, they're polite and they look away. Um, uh, and they see an enormous number of things that we don't think they see. That production then also drew a parallel with the lives of people with a disability. When you look at a person with a disability, you see the disability, but do you see their interior life? Mm. Do you think about their personal life, their romantic life? Um, And so drawing those parallels by placing this work made by uh, people with and without disability in public and private spaces in a hotel was, to me, fascinating. Um, Now, one of the issues was that choreographically I felt some of the choreography was a little tame Um, on the other hand when it's being danced by uh, young people with uh, Down syndrome for example 
I'm not necessarily going to expect the same degree of physical rigor and emotional intensity as I would from a work by Lucy Gehrening, for example. But every other standard, uh, aesthetically and so forth, I will hold the company to that same in mm. that same regard. Um, so I mentioned in my review that I felt some of the the choreography was a little bit safe, yeah. but at the same time, um, that they had this amazing kind of awareness of the space and how they were using it and the imagery they created. Um, uh, it was a fascinating work to see. And so that's a work in which I would very much, my awareness of them being a company uh, and their, their whole rationale around how and who they make work with and for, that's very much at the front of the company's uh, activities and so therefore it's at the front of my mind when I'm reviewing them. Is that part of it too? Because they, Restless, put that out there, they put it out there from the very beginning so you went in knowing and having almost been briefed. Yeah, I, I, I already, I'd not seen the company perform live before, for example, but uh, a couple of years ago there was, they made a series of short dance films um, that Sophie Hyde, the director of uh, 52 Tuesdays, I think. Uh, yep. Yep, so she made this work. So I already knew about the company. Uh, and obviously I, uh, in my, my work at Arts Hub and elsewhere, I'd heard about the company as well. So because disability is kind of front and centre in what they do, mm. I, I approached that work saying, well, okay, I'm, I'm reviewing this um, with an awareness that people with disability have contributed to the work the choreography is not by a person with a disability as far as I'm aware yeah. um, but so the way I look at that work is perhaps slightly different from the way I would look at a different dance com- another dance company for example um, uh, now I've forgotten the question no that's okay you, you, you pretty much got there that you went in with a different viewpoint because you'd been told beforehand of what it was going to be I'm going to ask Lisa a question now no, so scary the the thing that has come up too is, and I, I, okay, so Lisa, yes, you work with lots of different artists of different backgrounds, including some theatre groups and dance groups of people with Down syndrome, for example. Correct. And I've heard this, this topic come up of the ability is limited, so does that limit the criticism as well of what's expected? Would, and this is going to be hard for you to answer, so yeah. if you can't answer it, tell me. <laughs> but from your experience of those dance groups, yeah. do, they want to be, do they want to be judged on as high a level? Where do they want to sit with that sort of criticism? I think they want to be judged based on the work and based on the reviewer's reaction to it in context, I suppose. Um, One example I can think of is uh, Weave Movement Theatre, which is a company, an inclusive company um, of dancers with and without disability. And, you know, thinking about their pieces and the the variety of movement that those dancers have. They have wheelchair users, um, people of short stature, uh, amputees. Each dancer has such individual use of their body and their movement, which brings a diversity that's really interesting. And I think that's what they want a reviewer to be talking about how that reflects how it works in the piece what the piece is actually about because how the piece draws from the different abilities of the people within the group and to to create an overall work of art yeah Yeah. i think much like say a more traditional um ballet piece would draw on the strengths of you know a certain pair of dancers and the strength of of their pas de deux or you know a great pirouette or something like that you know you're looking at the individual and how it works in the context of the choreography and the the greater story that they're trying to tell um it doesn't doesn't sound much different it's about context and the intent of each group and what they're trying to make and then whether they were in in your view richard successful in reaching that intent yeah it's are they achieving their goal yeah and i guess that's that's what i as someone who works with artists with disabilities, I would be looking at a review just to see does it address the questions the show asked, the you know the arguments it put forward, the story it wanted to tell. Mm. Um, 
is it reflecting, to my mind, one of the, the key things is uh, not looking at a work at face value, but saying, okay, what mm. is the subtext of this work? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the metaphors it's trying to explore and present and tease out? Uh, and so, obviously, my reading of uh, the Restless piece, Intimate Space, may be very, very different from that of other critics, for example, mm. um, who may not necessarily make the parallels that, that, that I made. But the sheer fact that it uh, this work got me thinking about the interior lives of such a different array of people um, to me automatically says the work is successful because it's um, it's challenging me to consider the the unconscious blinkers that I wear when I'm a guest in a hotel, for example, uh, or when I'm uh, glancing at somebody in the street who uh, may have may or may not have a, a, a disability. So it, it's interesting because. I, I, I certainly think that I don't know enough about the about art and disability, and it certainly seems that Australia, as a country, is lagging behind kind of work being made. Uh, so in the UK, for example, where the circus sector seems to be much more integrated, uh, and I, I know there are uh, steps being made here to address that, but it. it I certainly think in many ways as a critic, I'm very representative of the rest of the Australian arts community going, I want to know more, but I don't know enough yet. I think that's what I enjoy about some of the articles you've written. Um, You know, I think just having a quick think about it, you know, you've covered Arts Activated, which is our big national conference about the arts and disability. Um, You've covered... Speaking of circus, uh, Loki Rictus, who's a circus performer with disability, um, inclusive programs in writing, such as writability. You've talked about visibility and representation. It's it's the work that Arts Hub is doing is a good primer and a good um, conversation stimulator, and I think is encouraging people to explore further and and consider things from a different perspective. But just going back to what we were saying before about, um, you know. Uh, dance companies in particular and being reviewed the other thing is a wheelchair user not an idiot knows that they do not have the same particular kind of movement as uh, someone who is not using a wheelchair so I think no they don't expect to be measured against the same uh, scale or the same uh, criteria as a dancer with full use of their body because yeah they they know what's going on well, it makes it sound like also that's the that's the power of the art. They set their intention anyway. Yeah. They choose what they want to do yeah. in this piece and how much they want to achieve and then they throw that out to the world to judge, which is what we all do whenever we watch anything. Yeah. Um, it reminds, Caroline Bowditch is, is from the UK now. She's a um, choreographer, a dance choreographer uh, who has osteogenesis imperfecta, uh, like Stella Young before her. Um, and... She's been here at the moment. She's here in Australia uh, working with other artists uh, in the inclusive space. And she was saying she likes to create choreography that makes able-bodied dancers do stuff she can't do, which I think is a really They're great They're puppets. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. But did either of you see Claire Cunningham's Guide Gods? I only, I've only seen video of Claire's performances. Um, Claire's a dancer and choreographer. Uh, she uses crutches but she uses them in her work. Yeah, and so the way that she's integrated them into her art is fascinating to watch. Mm. There was a, in the work Guide Gods, which she performed in Perth last year, um, she makes cups of tea and is then nego- walking down a set of steps with on with cr- uh, holding cups of tea while on her crutches. And the, the movement vocabulary she creates using the crutches as an extension of her body uh, and using tea as a metaphor for, for the way that we understand things it was fascinating to watch and yeah, she's a, a really interesting performer and it was fascinating to see that the Perth Festival programmed her as the artist in residence last year, part of an ongoing series of conversations that the festival want to have. So yeah, certainly I'd love to see uh, Claire come back to, to Australia uh, and spend more time uh, with local artists, both with and without disability, uh, teaching people and, and so they can learn from her and her work but yeah, a really interesting uh, kind of movement vocabulary which has grown out of uh, what some people would see as her physical restrictions but instead she's uh, used those so-called restrictions to then make an entirely new style of movement that uh, an able-bodied dancer would not be able to reproduce or create I suspect. So, I think that's quite similar. Uh, you're absolutely right in that the UK is 
I don't want to say light years ahead of us, but they're well and truly ahead of Australia in the inclusive arts space. Um, Legislation exists to stop it, which doesn't exist here. Yeah. Um, And also in the US, I think um, an example I can think of is a company called Heidi Latsky Dance, and they have a work called GIMP, which is uh, comprised of artists with and without disability. But um, there's some work with uh, trapezes and, and lots of aerial work that's done by a woman who has no legs and is missing a good chunk of her torso. And the things that she can do with aerial acrobatics, someone with legs can't do because the gravity works so differently. And I love that idea of a a new movement vocabulary because that's exactly what it is. You know, two dancers on stage uh, who are using wheelchairs have a completely different interaction and a different language and different movement style. And And, and as a critic, one of the things I look for in any artwork is something that I haven't seen before. Uh, And so if artists with disability can show me a style of movement that is new and different and refreshing, then of course that's going to help make for great art because uh, it is literally something uh, new being made in the space. And I think it's what we all look for when we go into, when we go to see art. You look for something that shows you the world in a new light or gives you a new insight or understanding or a new emotional experience or just does something different. Um, it's one of the reasons you go back and see you know, productions of Shakespeare time and time again because you want to see how a a different director and a different actor are interpreting a role differently Um, and so yeah that active interpretation and the way that active interpretation can be made utterly new by somebody with a different body shape or a different movement style um, that that fascinates me it's interesting because you mentioned Shakespeare and that's done and done and done over and over again it really is the director and the artists and the individuality that they bring to that performance and on something as, 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 as familiar as Shakespeare, it really reinforces how important it is for an artist with a disability to not discount that aspect of themselves and really reach in and use it to bring this new perspective that you're looking for as a critic to capture that attention. That, that sounds like that's a very strong, that's a strength they have. It's one of the reasons I'm really excited to see uh, Bell Shakespeare's upcoming Richard III, which is now playing in Sydney. Uh, Kate Mulvaney is playing Richard, uh, and she has, uh, as a result of childhood cancer, um, she has, I think, uh, scoliosis of the the spine, and she is allowed in this production, she is allowing herself to to hold herself naturally rather than working against her body and and hold herself in a... a in inverted commas properly um so i'm really intrigued to see what how that changes the production to have somebody uh with a disability on stage playing a character with a disability uh, and what that brings to the role it'll be really intriguing to see i think um we've touched on a little bit but disclosure is quite uh an interesting topic in this space. Um, I know that there are arts organisations who support artists with disability who don't encourage disclosure uh, on the idea that work should be judged on its artistic and creative merit um, rather than context. And there are organisations such as Arts Access Victoria who believe that context is key to understanding art. Um, And I guess my question is, If an artist discloses in promotions, in a media release, in contacting a reviewer, do you think that that adds a layer of interest? Do you think that it, you know, is necessarily um, makes it a more newsworthy piece? Sometimes, yes. Uh, It's certainly, for example, I know publicists We'll, we'll look for any angle to, to sell a show. And what is new, obviously what is newsworthy to one editor is not newsworthy to another. Um, at Arts Hub, for example, the sheer fact of somebody is doing a new show is not newsworthy for us, um, which drives some publicists mad because they they just <laughs> want to go, look, write about this new show because it's new and it's good. And it's like, well, I'm sorry, no, that's an angle for the Sydney Morning Herald or, <laughs> or for the Australian. That's not us. The angle for us is what is... Um, uh, what does this show have to say to the sector as a whole? How is it addressing a trend or an issue or something? Um, and certainly thinking back to my time as editor of the uh, the queer community newspaper, MCV, I know that publicists would in, would basically send like a, a letter to any... Uh, I, I, I can't use an, a specific example, but I'm just thinking of 
say when the comedy festival rolls around, everyone's desperate to get coverage of their show. So the publicist will be saying, right, who in your cast or in your production identifies as uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex, right. queer? Um, tick that box. Great. Okay. That's a marketing angle. So we can sell your show to, even though the show is not about being queer, we can get the queer person from this show an interview with kind of uh, Joy 94.9, the, the the queer community radio station or an MCV or whatever. Um, and so to a degree there, uh, disclosure can be can be as simple as to serve as a marketing tool. So to clarify, did that work always or sometimes or? Um, it's certainly, if you are, if you've got a blank spot in your paper and you're going, right, I needed uh, an interview with an artist to fill that space. Oh, okay. Um, this guy is playing the, the, heroic uh, heterosexual lead in something but he's a screaming queen let's get him in um so yeah sometimes it does work um and i think disclosure is also valuable because it lets people in the audience know um that uh, a show may speak to them not in a direct way through its themes but indirectly because uh, uh the person playing a lead role um has uh, perhaps a genetic condition that resonates with the audience or something like that. So, um, and can serve as, I, I'm, I was about to use the word inspiration and I suddenly heard Stella Young. <laughs> uh, kind of, but that notion of um, uh, providing young people with not necessarily a role model, but a living example that having a disability of any of, of one kind or another does not have to limit your life choices and your opportunities in life. So I think disclosure can be valuable in that regard as well. I say this is a non-disabled kind of cisgendered gay man. So uh, um, I don't have to look too far to find kind of uh, examples of, of uh, it from my own past where I've gone, it's important to me to know that musician X or Y was queer, for example. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, th I think uh, just on a personal level, yeah, I think disclosure is valuable in that regard as well. It makes, uh, especially in the arts, which is, you know, you've got that other challenge, can I even make a career out of it? So you're not only seeing that someone made a career out of the art form you're choosing, but that they had. For me, it's there's an artist who was uh, around in New York in the 90s, Bob Flanagan. I have cystic fibrosis. He had cystic fibrosis. And he was a successful performance artist. And I, I take inspiration knowing that how, how he used his disability or didn't is an in, in, it inspires me, whether it's inspiration porn or not. It's something I'm interested in and, and gathers my attention. Yes, and a DVD of Bob, Bob Flanagan's work that Simon makes all of his friends watch, mm. which is terrifying and horrifying because Bob Flanagan was a big fan of hurting his own genitals. Yes, he was a super masochist. That was his work. That was the, the, the focus of his work. So that's confronting. Mm. Hi, Simon. Nice to meet you. Great. You want to be friends? Watch this video. Here's, here's a DVD of a man nailing his penis to a board. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's a fun Saturday night. Yeah, very yeah. 90s, isn't it? Very industrial too. It was, yeah. He was in a Nine Inch Nails film clip. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Richard, um, I was reading an article on Arts Hub, trawling through the archives, as you do, and I found an article that you had written about the first arts-activated conference, um, and there was a quote from one of the organisers, Jane Pollard, and she said, quote, there's the arts and disability sector, and then there's the arts sector, end quotes. I think that that's something that, as a as someone who works in the arts and disability, we bump up against quite a lot. We don't really exist fully in either world. We really straddle the arts and we straddle disability. As someone who is engaged in, shall we say, the mainstream art sector, but who has exposure and has written about um, inclusive arts and disability arts, do you feel that that statement is true, that there's a division between the arts and disability? I suspect there is. I'm I because I'm one of the odd things about being a journo is I have one foot inside and one foot outside. Mm. Um, and when it comes to uh, the arts and disability sector, I think I'm very much more an observer rather than an, an active participant. Mm. Um, but I certainly think that still for a lot of mainstream arts organisations, disability is something that they all think we should do more in this sector. But, oh, it's too hard. We don't know where to start. So they, mm. they sometimes let it drop. And that can uh, – and I've seen some examples of, for example, uh, theatre productions in which I just sit there thinking, why is someone cripping up in this show when you could cast an actor with a disability to play the role? 
Um, and so that, that frustrates me enormously. And I presume one of the answers that if I ask the artistic director of the company in question, he'd, they, they might just say um, it's because it's too expensive because we have to pay for them and then we have to pay for um, a translator or a carer or an assistant and so forth. But I think then that that's not a good enough answer, mm. that if expense is the only issue, then particularly in the major companies, go out and find a philanthropic donor, um, which those companies are good at, let's face it, um, and... Uh, to make up the extra income required, set out and plan to make uh, your productions so that there are roles for people with disability. But in the same way, uh, our main stage theatre companies, for example, uh, are not succeeding when it comes to not succeeding in the most part when it comes to cultural diversity on stage because let's face it, the, there are a couple of companies who are doing well in that regard, but for the most part, uh, most of the faces we see on our stages are white. And our screens, it's popped up in a lot there too. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a, there's a lot that organisations and companies need to address. Uh, and I suspect that they're sometimes... They, I don't know whether they're consciously... Whether their board and artistic directors and exec, executives are consciously going, look, let's just try and get gender diversity right first and then we'll address mm. cultural diversity and then maybe we'll get along to disability in time. I, I, I'm sure they're not thinking it at that in that structured kind of way, but sometimes that's what it feels like, that they're just going, okay, disability at the moment, that's in the too hard basket. It's something we all aspire to, but, oh, look, back-to-back theatre exists. They're doing a really good job. <laughs> Let's let them do that and we'll look after our own backyard. And yeah. it's kind of like, well, no, maybe you need to open your backyard up and have other people playing in it. Mm. Um, and back-to-back -back would be a, a good example of that. I'd love to see more collaboration, say, between back-to-back uh, -back and the MTC. Mm. Uh, uh, just so that you to, to start to see actors with disability playing um, uh, roles. Uh, yeah, cause when I was introduced to the phrase "cripping up," my, it, my brain did this little explosion. I went, "Yes, yes, this is, <laughs> of course, this is completely fucked." And it's in the same way that if I saw an actor in blackface, I'd be horrified. Yeah. So why aren't main stage audiences horrified when they see somebody um, kind of like you know, putting on a stammer or a limp or or whatever to to play a yeah, it, it's it's starting to incre become increasingly frustrating for me. It's interesting too because you mentioned that uh, there's not a budget, say, for for access needs. But then, if you talk about uh, cultural diversity, what's the? You don't need a budget for different different race or skin colors. There's there's nothing really. There's no practical thing that's stopping that. And so that's just being stopped by a little bit leaders aren't taking up the challenge. And the producer, I always push that because I'm a producer of film. And so I know that as a writer or a producer, you're making those choices and you're choosing to not pursue a diversity, if you, if you, a diversity challenge if you don't do it. It just suggests that there's not a, a progress within a leadership role in the different sectors to actually take up that challenge and try and do something about it. And... It sounds the way you describe it. It sounds like they're preempting the failure, preempting the cost, preempting the difficulty, preempting how hard it will be. Instead of saying, "Well, how is it easy? How is a way for it to be easy to be done?" I, I think Not everyone's in a wheelchair. Not everyone's missing a limb. Yeah, I in think the disability sector. Richard, you, when you hit the nail on the head, but it's being put in the too hard basket for such a long time, and I think that that almost becomes part of institutional memory. Is you know, at, at the MTC or at the Malt House, oh, access is expensive, access is hard. But, you know, it is one of the nice things about my job is seeing those companies really engaging with access um, in a really active way and seeing those conversations happening um, more commonly. But it's been super interesting for me over the last two years to see that kind of the standouts are your fringes and next waves and the smaller kind of... Um, less mainstream organizations who are really tackling it in such a with such gusto like and next wave with the least money yeah like next wave last year just rocked it they put together an amazing access guide they really worked with their producers in their venues to work on accessibility um and i was so proud like seeing that guide come out and seeing just not just wheelchair access symbols but also you know online interpreted shows and shows that had tactile tours and audio description um but yeah 
I'd like to see more coming from. Oh, you, I take it back. I was going to say I want to see more coming from um, the majors, but uh, Victorian Opera are doing fantastic work with tactile tours and relaxed performances. I know Art Centre Melbourne. Uh, one of my colleagues at Arts Access is now the Access and Inclusion Manager there, so I'm biased because I love her. But also, I have, yeah, um, Victorian Opera and Arts Centre Melbourne, uh, it was only about three years ago that they did the first relaxed Hansel performance. Hansel and Gretel, yeah. Um, so it's interesting that I, the culture is changing and and uh, and I am optimistic that it will change more uh, as people more people move into the sector from who for example have worked at next wave or worked at fringe and worked on small shows where they may not have budget but they have um uh, passion and ambition and as more people move up into the sector into producing roles and so forth then slowly the culture will change um and i'd I'd be fascinating to know just having say when uh just tom was performing at malthouse last year with backstage in biscuitland um the impact that hosting that show at the Malthouse and I'm sure the conversations that she would have had with the executive team at the Malthouse for example around access and inclusion the the kind of the ripples of those kind of uh performers because and and often it comes down to individuals driving cultural change Mm. um and the more empowered individuals are out there just saying i know that's the way we've always done it but why and why can't we change that change it and do it like this instead the more conversations like that happen the, the the sector will will change i think it was a quote from again one of your articles not a stalker or anything, but, uh, you know, there it is. Uh, Tony Ayres, who's a producer, said that one of the things he's noticed is this fundamental shift, that diversity for maybe this next generation or, or this current crop of producers and creators is not just about ticking a box. It's become cool to the point where they feel it's strange to not see diversity represented on screen or on stage. And to me, that you know, that warms the cockles of my heart. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, Tony's a good example of somebody who uh, has come up through the ranks. It is now a producer in a, in a probably one of the, the most influential television producers in the country uh, and for whom the issues of cultural diversity, uh, A, there's a lived experience there that, that's driving that and B, it's just kind of, no, this is how you do it. Uh, and so you have these culturally diverse casts that actually reflect contemporary Australia in the dramas that they're creating. Um, and... Uh, then as more shows like that are rolled out and made, then we will uh, the shows that aren't changing will, will start to look more like dinosaurs and we'll just look at them and go, is, is this supposed to be a period piece? Because it looks like it's set in the 1950s. Oh, it's, it's contemporary. Oh, excuse me. Yeah. Set in the 1980s. Um, we like to give people a sense of uh, work to go check out. So is there any work that you've really enjoyed just from your entire time, just of artists or work you've seen that isn't inclusive arts or had some sort of topic to do with it or had an artist who was inclus- who was a person with a disability? Just some of your, f- just a favourite would be great. Obviously the, uh, the, the most recent example of work by a company with uh, a disability that sticks out is Restless Dance Theatre Space, uh, which uh, is certainly the most recent example I've seen and also just a beautiful piece. There was a moment in it towards the end where um, uh, a man and a, and a young woman are dancing together in a stairwell in a hotel, kind of with people sitting around them in the bar staring up at them. The audience are all wearing headphones uh, and we're hearing this uh, pre-recorded audio of whispering voices saying, should she be out with him? Uh, what's she doing? Kind of, uh, so questioning her agency, questioning the relationship between uh, a woman with a disability and, an, uh, and a man without a disability. Um, and so just kind of really sharp, um, intelligent commentary that I really wish everybody in the hotel had been able to, to listen to, but they didn't have enough headphones for everyone. Um, I'm sure there is really remarkable work being made in Perth, in Brisbane, uh, in Darwin, and in, in some of the regional centres as well. I'm not as across as as I would like to be. So if anybody is listening to this podcast and wants to send me details about the work that they're doing, please do. Rwatts at artshub.com.au. Yeah, do it. <laughs> well, it's a good segue because it's probably time for us to start wrapping up anyway. Yeah. So now you know how you can email Richard. Richard, where else can people find you across the internet? Um, they can uh, tune into my Triple R program at 
rrr.org.au. The program's called Smart Arts, goes to air every Thursday. Uh, and Triple R has a really good setup called Radio On Demand. So instead of having to listen to a show as it goes to live, you can go back and listen to any show, I think, over the last two years, for example. So last year, from October last year, you can go and listen to an interview I did with Jess Tom, for example. I saw Backstage in Biscuitland and loved it so much that I was <laughs> I rang the publicist and said, I have to have her on my show. Um, so yeah, and that, that was a, a great conversation. Um, Jess is, Jess is one of those uh, people I've only ever seen perform on video. She's got such magnetism and energy and verve. And yeah, uh, I think Backstage was quite a hit. It was. Uh, I liked it so much I immediately went out and bought a ticket again like for a couple of nights later so I could take a friend to it. He liked it so much that he then kind of <laughs> bought the T-shirt and I think it encouraged people to go and see it when it was in Sydney just recently. So. And you can see clips of it online if you Google it. Um, there are some YouTube videos so you can experience it for yourselves. Uh, and the website uh, for that Jess has set up is, I think, tourettshero.co.uk. There's a good interview uh, backstage in Biscuitland by Tourette's Hero at the Dublin Theatre Festival 2016 where uh, they talk about the work and how it, how it came about. It's a lovely little interview. Yeah, yeah, and just gets quite into um, some theory, some disability theory, social model versus medical model. So, yeah, she's a wonderful speaker. Yeah. Yeah, great performer. And obviously they can check you out on Arts Hub. Yes, artshub.com.au. I had to struggle there for a moment to remember <laughs> my own URL. And it, you're, you're a tweeter? I'm a tweeter, yes, yes, uh, I possibly uh, too too often. Um, I don't uh, think there's such a thing, Richard. Yeah, at uh, Richard the Watts on Twitter. There you go. Well, thank you very much for coming in. Thanks so much. Chatting it was great. with us, yes. My pleasure. Thank you very much for asking Loved me. Loved having you. Um, we want so many more people to know both sides, or there's many sides, but both sides to creating their work. If there are artists out there listening, Richard's a fantastic person to really progress what it is that you want to do. You just got to make sure that it's interesting and, and worth putting on a website, of course, and being <laughs> reviewed. That's always the challenge of every artist. But yeah, thank you very much, Richard, for what you do in progressing not just inclusive arts, but any underrepresented arts. Conversations. Yeah. For progressing conversations around culture. It's great. We love your work. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of Brilliant Inclusion. You can listen to previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud. Just search for Brilliant Inclusion. You can also find us at simonjgreen.com forward slash Brilliant Inclusion. And you can find me on Twitter at Lisa Green Tweets. And you can also find me, um, Simon J. Green, on Twitter at Simon John Green. That is J-O-N, no H. Um, and if you do listen to us on iTunes or Stitcher or even SoundCloud, leave a review, leave a comment because it really helps us out. And don't forget to share us. Tell other people, tell other artists, tell other arts practitioners. Sharing tell is other caring. with disabilities. Yes. Let them know that we exist so they can enjoy and learn with us. Till next time. <laughs>